with all things related to women leading in higher ed. We've all been through it, told we're too vocal or too mousy, too compassionate or too bossy. We all have had to find our way as we lead within a system that historically gives its accolades and promotions to straight white men. Meanwhile, women from all backgrounds are doing exceptional work, teaching, mentoring, facilitating, guiding, and leading. And increasingly, we're finding and sharing ways to lead that allow us to integrate the demands of our rich, varied lives so that we and those we love and those we lead can thrive. Women are leading higher ed at all levels with big hearts and big brains. I'm here to share our stories as well as practical advice for deepening and extending your own leadership practice. I'm so glad you're here listening to the Uplift Podcast. Hello, and welcome to episode 18 of The Uplift. If you're listening when the episode drops, it's now October, and here in Milwaukee, the weather has turned decidedly autumnal. The mornings are crisp and cool, and we've had this stretch of beautiful days with clear blue skies and just a hint of chill in the air. My kiddo and I have been taking weekend hikes with bacon, you remember Archibald McBacon Seventh. And we're having a great time exploring the bluffs and woodlands and wetlands throughout Southeast Wisconsin. We are also about a month out from the November midterm elections. And so with this episode, I'm kicking off a series of examinations and conversations about the relationship between democracy and higher ed. I'm particularly interested in having a better grasp on the question What do women leaders at U.S. colleges and universities believe their role is in educating for democracy? So I'm starting this series today with some personal ruminations on the events that led me to even ask this question in the first place. During the fall election season of 2016, I was a dean at a women's college in Missouri. My family and I had recently relocated to Columbia, which is a small blue circle smack dab in the middle of Missouri, which was then and is still today a solidly red state, despite its history of being a bellwether in elections. We had moved from Minnesota, though, so we were accustomed to living in a state that was mostly red, with distinctly blue urban centers, so in that way at least, Missouri felt familiar to us. Still, I was surprised to see pro-Trump signs on campus placed there by young women, and I was pretty ambivalent about them. I mean, the signs, not the young women. On the one hand, I was proud of the students for exercising their free speech and being bold enough to take a contrary position. And I mean, it seemed to me to be pretty contrary to be studying at a women's college and not be supporting a woman running for the highest office in the country. But, you know, I'm generally pleased when women speak up and speak their minds, even when and sometimes especially when their positions are unpopular. It is hard to speak up and be out of step with those around you. 
On the other hand, I felt very strongly that if young women were supporting a candidate who had a history of harming women and who harmed women intentionally and even boasted about it and who made a business practice of harming people who were economically disadvantaged, then I felt that we needed to reflect on whether we had failed as educators. My thinking at the time, and it hasn't really changed since, is that women voting for Trump were voting against their own self-interests. I know that's a complex position and lots deserves to be unpacked there, but fundamentally I felt and I still feel that a woman's college should educate women to fight for their self-interests, not in any selfish or self-aggrandizing way, but because women's rights are human rights. (laughs) Yeah, I voted for Hillary. Anyway, as much as I was dismayed to see those signs, I was even more disheartened to realize that my position was unpopular with campus leadership. And that prompted me to wonder, what do women leaders at colleges and universities think their role is in educating for democracy? That question came to me that day in Missouri, and it has persisted, quietly insistent, at the back of my brain ever since. That question came to me that day in a little bit of anger and some frustration, but also some sadness and also some genuine curiosity. And it's the question that motivates and organizes the next several episodes of the podcast. Today, I'm asking that question as a veteran educator and administrator. I'm asking the question as a white woman, a mother, a daughter, and a feminist. And wrapped up in those pieces of my identity is a whole lot of baggage. So that's where I'm going to start. I'm going to unpack a little bit of that baggage. I grew up straddling what felt like two very different worlds. In one world, I was a young Mormon girl living in a mixed family with my mother, her second husband, and her four children. In that home, we were in the world, but not of the world. We didn't listen to the radio. As kids, we were only allowed to watch the Muppet movie on TV. And for a stretch of time, we started our mornings by reading scripture as a family. We were also poor. I was one of the few kids in my grade who got vouchers for free lunch at school. My mom sometimes shopped from the Goodwill donation bins before Goodwill came to empty them. And there was a period of time when we ate primarily because the church brought us food. That home was also violent. And so there, in that world, I was a very good girl. I was quiet, obedient, an excellent student, and a devoted big sister. Underneath that... I was mostly hungry and scared. In the other world, I was a Mormon girl living with her grandparents. Although both of them were Mormon, my Yugoslavian grandfather had been raised Catholic, and as a converted Mormon, he was pretty iconoclastic. With him, we whiled away our summer hours drinking Coca-Cola and gambling our pennies while playing blackjack and poker and pinochle. And for a while, he had me convinced that I could put myself through college as a blackjack dealer in Vegas, which I still kind of wish I had done, or at least tried. Anyway, one of my favorite stories about him, and I have no idea if this is true, but this was the story. He retired early from his job as an accountant at Standard Oil when he discovered someone above him was cheating, and when he reported it, the story was hushed up. In the story I heard... The cheating superior was also a Mormon, and so in his disgust, my grandfather not only retired from work, but also quit going to church. So in my childhood eyes, my grandfather was this strong, confident man who stood by his values and also let his grandkids have some fun. My grandmother, also a Mormon, was an outspoken feminist. 
She took me to rallies and events, and even though once there I was shunted into the kids' groups to make crafts while the women got involved in women's work, I knew what was going on. She was a longtime member of BPW, Business and Professional Women of Utah. She took a lot of grief from her husband for the time she spent with what he called her women's groups, but she did it anyway. She was also a retired English teacher turned high school librarian, and she brought me home bound books to read every summer, so I counterbalanced my reading of the Book of Mormon by reading Julie of the Wolves and novels by Leon Uris and Chaim Potuk. At my grandparents' house, there were Oreos and potato chips in the cabinets. There were plentiful dinners every day, and there was always ice cream in the freezer. Nobody hurt me or yelled at me or threatened to harm people I loved. All of this is to say I grew up with a really, I mean, uh, I don't even really know what words to use here, but, but I grew up strangely with these wildly competing examples of what the world offered and how to move through it, especially if you were a woman. One of my grandmother's favorite stories to tell about me is that when I was little and she'd ask me what I wanted to be when I grew up, I'd say, a mommy, and she'd say, a mommy, and what else? It was always fine with her if I chose motherhood. She just wanted there to be an and. She wanted an also. And she discouraged me every time my also was a traditionally female job. She didn't want me to be a nurse or a stewardess or a teacher. Meanwhile, my own mother hadn't earned a college degree or even completed high school. So this idea that I could be both a mother and be ambitious, intellectually and professionally, was another conflict for me. But as I started making my own decisions as a teenager and then as a young adult, I found myself making choices that put me on a path a lot like my grandmother's path. And ironically, this cast me as a troublemaker, since that meant I was also defying a lot of familial expectations. But it's also taken me pretty far. So like, I'm sitting in this house today here in Milwaukee, surrounded by books. We read all the books. My kids read all the books. We have plenty of food. We rail against the patriarchy. We support education at all levels. We don't hit each other. We don't hurt each other. We do a lot of the things my grandmother modeled for me. And yet, you know, I sit here, I live in this very safe place in a body that has been assaulted and hungry. I've lived scared. I have experience being a young girl who couldn't really speak up and didn't know how. I have experience being a young girl who, for her own safety, had to embrace other people's behaviors and ideologies, even if they harmed me. And so even though I'm walking this other path, the path I walk is still littered with the debris of all those things I walked away from. Those conflicting worlds and the dissonance they created are knit into the fabric of my being. And all of that is part of who I am when I show up as an educator and an administrator on a college campus. Which helps explain, I think, why I feel some ways about young women on college campuses not being shown a path toward the intellectual and physical empowerment of fighting for their own interests and their own rights as human beings. So when I ask, what do women leaders believe is their responsibility in educating citizens for a democracy? I ask it partly from the perspective of young women who are finding their way and shaping their identities, who deserve to be taught to interrogate systems of power, and who deserve the experience of learning to use their voices. I care about this so much because I was taught those things even though they were conflicts, but those teachings completely changed my life. Okay, so I ask this question not only as a feminist with a complex past, but also as someone who loves teaching college students. 
When I was a graduate student at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and I was learning how to teach, a number of my colleagues were involved in service learning. And the idea that students could take their knowledge out into the public and use it to make change, and that as a faculty member I could actually organize my teaching that way, was really foreign to me. I had never had an experience like that as an undergrad studying English literature. I didn't know anybody who'd done this as a student. And my personal understanding of community service was also deeply connected back to church and religion. You know, remember those church ladies who brought us food when I was a kid? And I had a really deep desire to keep all of that, all of that past, all of that religious stuff separate from what I was trying to do and who I was trying to be as I pursued my PhD. I don't think I ever thought about it that way at the time, but I remember how I felt and I can still feel that discomfort in my gut, that discomfort that the idea of service learning prompted. And I don't really think it was about the service and I don't really think it was about the learning. And slowly over time, my ideas have changed. In Madison, we had one professor in particular. His name is Bruce Burgett, and he's now at the University of Washington, Bothell. He talked a lot about the role of scholarship in public life. Even today, the first sentence of his teaching philosophy is this. I believe that lively teaching requires lively research and that both need to be tied closely to complex problems that arise in everyday life. When he shared that view on teaching more than 20 years ago, I found it so novel as to be unimaginable. I mean, I literally could not imagine how my work, which was studying visual culture in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, would have any relevance to problems in daily life. And I'm not even sure I wanted it to. But even before I finished my PhD, I was starting to see those connections. And I eventually told my dissertation advisor that I wanted to write a chapter on virtual reality, but I had no idea how to do that. And I really just wanted to finish the damn project already, and so I didn't take on that chapter. But even now, I kind of wish I had tried. Later, having graduated and you know being a young professional in the world, I became familiar with both Campus Compact and Imagining America. But by that time, I was an administrator, not a faculty member. And so the programs and their purposes interested me mostly from the viewpoint of how they could enrich the campuses I served. My interest was not yet personal in the way that I think teaching interests are often personal. But it got personal for me in 2011 when I learned about a project out of the University of Oregon called the Sustainable City Year Program. The program is the brainchild of two faculty who believed that their students' expertise could be put to legitimate use to advance cities, tribes, and all kinds of communities across the state of Oregon. Essentially, the program partners with a community for an entire academic year, and the community dusts off the projects it wants to tackle, but which are currently shelved or delayed for lack of resources. And then those projects are matched to classes on campus, and the students taking those classes actually complete some or all of the work of those community projects. Everybody wins in this model. Actual community work is completed. Communities are served by the flagship public state institution, which legit is their purpose. And students apply their learning in real time in a complex and meaningful context. I've seen this program in action. I've been there twice to visit. It's really amazing. And so we brought a version of this program to the Twin Cities in 2012 when I was the executive director of the Associated Colleges of the Twin Cities, or ACTC. We partnered with the city of St. Paul, and ACTC undergrads completed some really meaningful projects. So for an example, an engineering class designed a light bulb retrofit so that original streetlights could burn LED bulbs instead of needing to be fully replaced. For a different project, a marketing class designed and launched an awareness campaign about keeping storm drains clean. In St. Paul, the storm 
drains go straight to the Mississippi River and were often cluttered with, like seriously, discarded televisions and even bowling balls. Another class, an environmental science class, worked on a composting project, and another class uh, developed a way to capture rainwater runoff from the roof of a city building. At the time, I wouldn't have framed this work as preparing students for democracy or citizenship, but I think back to Bruce's belief that lively teaching requires lively research and that both need to be tied closely to complex problems that arise in everyday life, and I see that philosophy at work here. The ACTC college students experienced their learning as practical, applicable. They saw that they were capable of creating tangible, positive transformations within a community. And this is part of what's so interesting to me about educating for democracy. Fundamentally, I think it's about educating students in a way that connects their care for the world they live in to the things they're learning at school. So back to this question that motivates me. I care about it as a teacher. I care about it as a feminist. And increasingly, I care about it from the structural, organizational perspective of a higher ed administrator looking at institutions. It wasn't until I started serving at the level of dean and above that I began to understand or maybe even really deeply think about the structural ways that institutions can either embrace and model or counter and stifle the notions and values inherent in democracy. As a veteran administrator in a range of roles on a variety of campuses, I wonder how much does it matter if we teach classes on citizenship, if we host get out the vote activities, if we encourage students to see themselves as actively creating their communities, how much does that matter if as an institution we are modeling in our words, actions, in our structure, non-democratic or even anti-democratic norms? How much does everything we say to students matter if on our campus we stifle dissent? How much does what we teach students matter if we don't encourage and model asking troubling questions? How much does it all matter if as an institution we stay silent on important issues? I recently read the book What Universities Owe Democracy by Ronald Daniels, the president of Johns Hopkins. I've dropped a link to his about page at Johns Hopkins because that page provides a good context for his lifelong interest in sustaining a democracy and how he's incorporating that into his presidential legacy. In his book, he writes that we can teach the art and science of democratic citizenship. And I love that phrase, the art and science. I hadn't really thought about that way. And what he means is that we can not only ensure that our students have a comprehensive understanding of civics, that is a historical knowledge of how and why our government is designed the way it is, but also that our students have the dual abilities of, on the one hand, identifying and harnessing facts and truth, and on the other hand, engaging in genuine debate and reaching informed compromise, compromise, like not consensus, but compromise, with people who think differently than they do. In What Universities Owe Democracy, Daniels writes that democracy has always privileged the will of the majority and the wisdom of the crowds, whereas liberalism champions personal autonomy and human dignity, freedom of thought and belief, and reasoned debate as a means of progress. He says it's the fusion of these two ideas that binds the notion of a government responsive to popular will to the imperative to protect individual rights and preserve rule of law. And he says it's the push and pull between these structures that can be regarded as one of the unique sources of strength for a liberal democracy. And so this idea that citizenship in a liberal democracy requires both the ability to deal honestly with facts and to deal honestly and fairly with people who trade honestly in facts 
and yet have different perspectives and different values and therefore probably want different things. All of that takes me right back to those student signs in Missouri. What I wanted for our students in that moment was the chance to debate, the chance to use their knowledge, to harness truth, to investigate facts, and to marshal an argument and engage in meaningful conversation with people who believed different things and who had different values. I didn't just want signs posted on bridges. I wanted campus-wide conversations about, sure, the election, but also what it meant to be a woman at that moment in history and what values were at play in which arenas in the country and what it would mean to use your voice and for which purposes and to what ends. What I longed to see in the election season of 2016 was the university teaching and modeling those tenets and those tensions of liberal democracy. And if we had been able to teach and model those tenants and then students still wanted to stump for Trump, I would have, I mean, I would have probably felt not great, but I'm pretty sure I would have felt a whole lot better. I think every institution bears this responsibility to its students, its alums, and its employees. We share a responsibility in what we teach and in how we teach and in how we treat each other to engage the basic tenets of a liberal democracy to preserve autonomy, dignity, and freedom of belief, to create spaces for our positions to encounter one another and collide precisely so that we can find our way forward together through the wisdom of the crowd in a way that cares for all of us. And that can only happen, like really happen, if everybody knows that they can speak up, that it's safe to speak up, and that they've been taught how to speak up, so that at the very least they can try. I believe we need to teach this to our students everywhere, in class, on the playing field, in student orgs, and the orchestra pit, everywhere. I also believe that institutions have a responsibility to model the fusions and tensions of liberal democracy in the ways we self-govern. Okay, so like take the faculty senate. When it votes, the will of the majority wins the day and the organization changes. New programs are started, tenure and promotion procedures are revised, new committees are formed, and those decisions are meant to be made on the bedrock of discussion and debate where faculty voice the full range of their opinions before the wisdom of the crowd takes over. That principle that we can share and explore facts and perspectives about those facts before we draw conclusions is the hallmark of research and the creative expansion of knowledge. But we can also extend it to student government, to the president's leadership team, even to the board. If we truly want to teach our students how to participate in democracy, I think all that needs to happen. Otherwise, we risk students learning their civics lessons only in books while learning from experience and observation that the world doesn't really work that way and that power can be exercised to undermine the principles of democracy even when it could be used to sustain democracy instead. Students already see that lesson all around. I don't think they need to see it on our campuses. I think we owe it to them to show them an alternative. And so all that, all that, all that is where I'm coming from. Okay, and honestly, I super appreciate that you just listened to all of that, but I'm not that interested in my take on all this. I mean, I know what I think, and I don't know whether I'm an anomaly. So I genuinely want to ask this question of lots of other women leaders. I want to know what other women leaders think about this question, how they think about this question. I want to know how they experience it in their daily activities as educators and administrators and leaders. I want to know what these activities look like around the country, especially when they are imagined and created and led and sustained by women. So I've invited a number of women to join the podcast this month in a series of interviews all focused on the question, what do women leaders believe is their role in educating for democracy? 
As we explore this question leading up to the elections on November 8th, I hope these conversations give you some ideas for your own campus, give you new questions and frames of reference, new things to ponder, and possibly even maybe a bit of hope for our future. I know that's a tall order, and I'll see you next week with our first featured guest. Meanwhile, thank you so much for joining me for this week's episode of The Uplift, the podcast dedicated to elevating and amplifying women's leadership in higher education. Take a moment to follow. You can find me over on Apple Podcasts or Overcast or Spotify, wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. You can also find all previous episodes with transcript, show notes, and links at my website, www.theclariogroup.com. And hey, I see you with your phone open. Come connect with me on social. You can follow the Clario Group on LinkedIn or Facebook. You can also just follow me and you'll see all the Clario Group content. And once you've followed, please drop me a DM to say hi. I'd like to know you're there. All right, that's it. I will see you next week, same time, same place, for the next episode of The Uplift. Bye for now. 